0: Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week, uh, two great conversations. First up, a conversation with one of our regulars, Boston Globe Sports Media writer and general columnist Chad Finn. We uh, offer all thoughts on the first week of NFL broadcasting from Buck and Aikman's ESPN debut, Burkhart and Greg Olson's debut as Fox's top NFL team, a little bit of uh, Iron Eagle Charles Davis, Chad uh, watched uh, Greg Gumbel and uh, Adam Archuleta, I'm not sure he particularly loved that broadcast uh we get into certainly amazon big story this week coming up for us what we can expect from their broadcast what we can expect from their viewership chad is followed by alex flanagan who has uh, made a fascinating transition from being a full-time broadcaster to the senior vice president and partner and agent for the family sports marketing and talent agency so she has morphed from a front-facing talent to a broadcast agent and in the podcast, she discusses her transition from working as a broadcaster for NBC, the NFL Network, and ESPN. And if you remember, Alex did uh, all sorts of NFL stuff, covered multiple Olympics, was with the NFL Network for a long time, and is now a talent agent. Why and how that transitioned happened, the challenge of building a talent base. She represents a number of people in the business right now. Kimberly A. Martin of ESPN, my colleague at the Athletic, Britt Ciroli, Sloan Martin, that's among her clients her personal experience with agents and how that shaped her to do this job and so a really really fascinating transition i'm not sure anybody at alex flanagan's level of broadcasting has ever made this transition so uh i was psyched to uh, that she was uh, she agreed to come on and to talk about it so chad finn to start alex flanagan to finish coming up on the sports media podcast all right. As I said at the top, we bring in Chad Finn, sports media writer, general columnist of the Boston Globe, and we'll do a little recap, media recap of the first week of the NFL season. If Chad has any thoughts about uh, college football, not. as well, he is feel free. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think so. Although I did see that, uh, uh, you know, Fox's uh, PR department uh, literally an hour before we um, uh, tape this, we're pushing out, uh, and rightly so. You know, if you if you get a uh, if you get a big number, you should push it. Uh, Alabama, Texas, Chad, 10.6 yeah. million viewers yeah. on Fox. Very, very big number. Uh, Fox's fourth most-watched regular season game in history. They're not going to get Alabama and Texas much over the next uh, 10 years, so enjoy it while you can. But that's a big, big number. Obviously, that was a thrilling game. It went uh, deep into the fourth quarter. So
2: I'd like to see the progression of the numbers, you know every half hour so
0: yeah but a big time big time number you know alabama just so the listeners know far and away let me take that back alabama and ohio state far and away the two most um highest viewed programs when it comes to television viewership and and they have historically been now five six years is some of that because they have major matchups against other great programs Certainly, for sure, but those are the standard bearers when it comes to college football viewership right now. And then I would put Notre Dame, Michigan, in the in the next tier. Georgia in there? I think they they can be when they're good, but they're not in the they're not in the Alabama, Ohio State uh, You know, Michigan, Notre Dame. The real question will be the interesting one: in college football is can USC ever become that if they get good? Um, and that's sort of an interesting one to to look down the line, But again, anyway, you know, congr- I guess congratulations to Fox. I mean, if, you know, dear Lord, man, if you pay a billion dollars for this product, you should get some good ratings every now and then. And, and they did. All right. Let us move, Chad, to the National Football League. We are taping this on Tuesday, the day after the Monday Night Football regular season debut of Joe Buck and Troy Aikman. Um, I watched the entire game. Wrote about it for The Athletic. These are one of these long nights uh, when you know, Chad has experienced it too. When you're doing uh, sports media writing, um, you know, there are certain nights you got to stay up, watch the broadcast, and, and try to react uh, immediately. The theme of my piece, Chad, revolved around the feeling of um, an event, the feeling of something big. And I think for such a long period of time, the thing that ESPN craved and desired was making Monday Night Football feel big and it really had struggled with whatever that is and again that's a very subjective thing since 2006 when they lost, uh you know when when Sunday Night Football came in and became the signature primetime NFL game of the week and Monday Night Football became a little less than with certainly a schedule that was less than. So we'll get into Buck and Aikman's debut Um, I w- I'd like your take first and then I'll give you mine.
2: Well you're bringing that up um, of all the Interviews all of us media folks did with uh, talent leading up to the season. Uh, the, the the number one takeaway that jumped out to me was Stephanie Drooly talking on a uh, uh, conference call that they had with Buck and Aikman before the start of the season. And she acknowledged they got a better schedule because they have a higher profile broadcast team now. And um, you don't usually get those kind of admissions, but she was completely upfront about it uh that that uh the nfl in essence is viewing this monday night football as a bigger deal again because of the people in the broadcast booth now i'm a believer that uh broadcasters don't drive viewership for the most part uh i think a little bit when tony romo first started people were certainly tuning in to, to see what the buzz was all about uh but if you're interested in the teams or if there's a good game on, you're, you're really not affected one way or the other by who's in the booth. You might be annoyed, but you're it's not going to cause you not to watch the game for the most part. Um, but it sounds like the NFL sees a little bit differently because uh, they've got this booth that's been together since, what, 2002, back when they... I uh, replaced Madden and Summerall at Fox. You have Collinsworth was with them for a couple of years and then spend these two guys ever since. And uh, they are bringing a bigger magnitude back to Monday Night Football um, because the NFL is seeing it that way. And the NFL is giving them better games in part because of that broadcast team, that's pretty remarkable to
0: me. Yeah, the so um, I, I did catch Drewley saying that, and I thought that was... Um... That was interesting. Listeners should know that the NFL, and Chad, I know you know this, they have to essentially sign off on these broadcast hires. Uh, You know, the, the ESPNs and the CBS and the Fox, you know, they can say they're making the hire, but the NFL, quite frankly, can put the kibosh on it or certainly put pressure on the broadcast networks if they don't like the hire. And the NFL wants its product to feel big. And that's... That's what I felt watching them last night. Like, they got a great game. They got a great finish um, between Seattle and Denver and, you know, Nathaniel Built-in storyline, yeah. Yeah, built-in storyline, Russell Wilson coming back, Seattle's fans going nuts, Nathaniel Hackett making a very questionable choice of trying to have a uh, game-winning kick as opposed to trying to let Russell Wilson pick up a fourth down play. So they got a great, you know, a great finish and a game that was very, very compelling. But... It just felt bigger, and I think you know some of that is my own preconceived bias here because I've heard Buck and Aikman call big games for a long time, and I think I'm six Super Bowls. You know, so, yeah, yeah, I'm just as a viewer, I think I'm programmed to think. Well, if they're doing the game, it sort of means more. But I think if you're ESPN last night, I think you got everything you wanted. I think it, they were very, very good in their first game. the The game was exciting, um, and. You know, they paid a fortune for him. You know, I looked it up there, you know, the Drake, I is his salary, annual salary is equivalent to Minka Fitzpatrick's salary. One of the best, uh, one of the best defensive, uh, you know, one of the best safeties in the, in, in the NFL. Troy would laugh at but, that, you know. Yes, he would. Yeah. <laughs> but they had, um, but they had a good first game. I thought everybody, if you're ESPN, you got to feel good. And I know this having talked to ESPN executives for a long, long time. Listen, they know full well, and they heard all the comments about their previous booths. They didn't like the fact that, like, the Booger Mobile was getting mocked. I mean, you know, they've they've had to eat it for a long time while their their you know their network equivalents were praised, and they've you know they had to live through Romo being praised and stuff like that. So finally, I feel like if you're ESPN, you got a great story to tell when it comes to your Monday Night Football booth. And um, and again, it just it felt. It's a subjective thing. It just felt bigger. It just felt like a little bit of an event. Will it feel like that week nine of Buck and Aikman? I don't know. But week one, it did.
1: Well,
2: it's already familiar. And, and, and like you said, you're used to them uh, calling these games a great magnitude, and it, it uh, you know opening week of the NFL season certainly isn't that. But uh, it's uh, it, it's something that. Uh, um, feels kind of big that you've been anticipating for a while and, and uh, to get a good game and to get a broad- have a broadcast booth there that just um, has so much gravitas and, and uh, uh, really doesn't need to establish itself whatsoever with the viewership. Um, I, you know, I heard from some people, uh, social media, I had an email about it this morning saying it was really weird to hear Buck and Aikman on ESPN. And uh, to me, that took about five seconds to go away. Uh, maybe it's because uh, I think most people consume a football game, not sitting there staring constantly at their television from the kickoff to the final play of the game. Uh, but, you know, you're on a second screen, you're staring at your phone, this sort of thing, uh, and you get used to the voices. And, and uh, hearing Buck and Aikman and uh, just that familiarity, um, you know, brought uh, – Brought a comfort level to it for ESPN right out of the gate that they they wouldn't have with a, quote-unquote, new broadcasting.
0: Let's go to uh, let's go quickly, just Tariq on Collinsworth. They did two games this week. Obviously, Collinsworth uh, trying to play Hurt uh, with his voice uh, on the Sunday night broadcast. But, I mean, I don't really have many things about Sunday night football other than they have a new executive producer in Rob Highland who takes over for Freddie Goodelli. Right the broadcast to me is still... <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did. Broad, broadcast to me still felt the same. Sunday Night Football felt big. And and um, Tariko and Collinsworth, I mean, they're not a new team. They've done 22, 23 games together. And so, like, I, they were what I expected professional. Um, they are always going to have a great game. So, that broadcast is always going to feel big. Yeah. Um, there's not much more I can sort of add. I, you know, I will say this. I don't know if you feel this, Chad. This is, I mean, I could end up being wrong. You know, Collinsworth felt, always felt so revolutionary that he was willing to be critical of things that you didn't hear from most major color analysts. And I feel in the last couple of years, he's become much more of a company guy for the NFL. Is that in my head or have you seen the same? Um, yeah,
2: and I would I'm, go back a little bit further. I agree with that assessment. I mean, he was really candid when he first started Um really had no filter at all in in some cases but uh i remember what season was it 2014 i think the uh, a playoff game between the ravens and um yeah is that the spygate year 2014 2016 can't remember 2016 maybe
0: this is yeah this is your world man spy gate and stuff like that uh, right?
2: deflate gate I can't can't even keep my <laughs> gate it. straight but uh yeah right <laughs> the end of that game um the show godell in the stands and Consort just went on this thing that it felt he was like almost reading about how the NFL was uh so dignified and all of this and blah 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 <laughs> blah and it's like what, the, what happened to him so um You know, kind of from that moment six years ago onward, I've uh, kind of haven't seen him in that same light as somebody who's critical. He is a company man. I guess you kind of have to be. You know, you mentioned that uh, the NFL signs off on all all these guys, and I I, I imagine all of them have this sense somewhere deep down that they uh, can't go off too much on the league as a whole. They can be critical to a point, but, uh, you know, that point is a line you probably don't want to cross.
0: Let's get to CBS. Um, I did not watch much of the Romo Nance broadcast. What I did, though, is I did yeah, watch did Pittsburgh I? and Cincinnati. Yeah, and um, I thought Eagle and Davis were excellent. They, they to me, are the best number two team when it comes to the yeah. the, the, the 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 sort of number two teams. Uh, I shouldn't even say the best number two team. I think they're the best team that's not an A team. That's probably a better way for me to phrase it. And they got a f- crazy insane game um, given what happened in uh, at the end of regulation and then overtime, you know, like uh, long snapper hurt, you know, kickers doinking off uh, uh, the posts. The um, as we're taping this chat, this just came over not too long ago. Sunday's regional window for CBS at 1 PM. So that includes Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, overtime, 17.4 million viewers most-watched Week 1 regional game window since 1998. That is insane. That's most-watched most, most watched regional week... Sorry, most-watched Week 1 regional game window in 24 years and up 21% from last year. That alone, along with the uh, mega rating, not surprisingly, for Dallas-Tampa Bay, I think makes me think that the NFL is going to be up over last year's Week 1, although we'll figure that out or see that soon enough. But... um. You now you did not watch Nance Romo. I don't think you, you told me you didn't watch much Eagle Davis. You got uh you got Greg Gumbel and Archuleta, and you were not particularly <laughs> pleased with that. I I understand, yeah. yeah I got to write
2: about this this week actually. This is what happens when a dynasty ends. Uh, people around here get so used to Nance and Romo, Nance and Romo, you know, Eagle uh, Eagle Davis the last couple of years as the number two team. Uh, and now the Patriots aren't at the uh, level that they were at, uh, through 2018, 2019 was, uh, even, you know, start 8-0 that year before things fell off. Um, and so you start getting a little bit further down the depth chart in terms of the broadcasters and the reminders come quickly that you had it pretty good when the number one guys were here, uh, you know, so often, um, gumbo is a really accomplished broadcaster. He's one of four guys still active that have called a Super Bowl right? Buck, buck michaels uh yeah
0: he may have hosted one too actually which yeah is they of, switched uh, him and nance some double yeah. yeah
2: and uh i think the last one he did might have been that Ravens super bowl but he uh the the when they beat the giants but um he's still jovial presence good natured presence but uh just so frustrating watching watching a broadcast like that where he, he doesn't always identify the guys who made the tackle which were, that would remember uh with your SI days Dr uh, Dr Z that was when he would do his
0: broadcaster rankings that's oh what God, drove him incredible. crazy when they didn't ID the tackler yeah. uh he was uh that, I mean they, the SI once I mean uh, yeah let's sort of go I'm not that anybody I think would care about this but th- there was a time whenever Dr Z like left si.com one of the editors there came up to me and said hey we would love you to do what uh dr z does in addition to all your oh, other boy. daily weekly work and i'm like are you insane <laughs> like no one can do like paul zimmerman played for columbian college football yes. he covered the league's greatest players. he's obviously one of the i mean he's a pain in the ass to deal with uh although he really liked me for some reason but um but y- you can't duplicate this guy like the, he's a unique yeah. figure so, so no i'm not doing that yeah. Yeah. So no, I'm not agreeing to do that because I cannot do that and you are setting me up for massive failure. I mean the guy would chronicle, you know, he'd take crazy notes about like broadcasters missing like uh, offensive line playing stuff. But, yeah, no one uh no one on earth uh could do that. But yeah, my sense is that uh um maybe maybe Dr. Z would not be loving the broadcast that you watch with Archuleta and Gumball.
2: Yeah, Archuleta was rough. he there were three or four times where he predicted something happen and the exact opposite happened. One of them was the, uh, uh, fourth and seven right before halftime, Jalen Waddle had a 42 yard touchdown. And, uh, he, he said, uh, uh, boy, I don't know what they're doing here. I don't, I don't get this. And then, uh, you know, it, uh, ended up being a game turning play. There are a lot of instances like that. He had this non sequitur where he started talking about, uh, did you know that the queen of England owned all of the dolphins in the UK? <laughs> <laughs> it was like 15 seconds of silence after that. I wish that it was one of those instances where you wish you could had a camera in the booth just to see what Gumpel's reaction was to that. But uh, yeah, they're missing the a-listers here in new England and they should probably get used to it.
0: Did you watch uh cause I did cause it uh, led my calm. Did you watch Burkhart and Olson? I did. Yeah. A little Vikings. bit. Yeah. I had it on. What'd you, what'd you think of that? Of those guys?
2: I know what they are already. I mean, you know, you're thinking about them as the new team, but I, I, I think Burkhart, Uh, is 100% deserving of the opportunity that he has, and you know, Olsen's uh still gaining experience, but he's really good. I think he's a little talkative sometimes, but I'd I'd agree with that in that Romo way. But I'd I'd rather have that than somebody who's not enthusiastic about it and he's self-deprecating. Uh, sees Mm -hmm. you know we always talk about how the quarterbacks see so many things, and the really good broadcasters can. Uh, identify concisely what they're seeing and t- kind of takes you into the game. Olsen was a tight end, but he does the same thing. It's pretty impressive. So, um, and I've also really kind of respected the way he handled the whole Brady thing. Uh, he's He's uh, been really gracious and had good humor about it. And, uh, you know, we'll see how that shakes out. But I'm happy for those guys. I think um, I'm glad to see them getting the opportunity to call Super Bowl this year. And uh, I thought they were good, and I think they will be good.
0: Uh, yeah, t- uh, to me, you know, I, I'm a big fan of the uh, Fox top NFL uh, production guys, uh, Rich Russo, the director, mm-hmm. Richie Zions, the producer, they, you know, they did Buck and Aikman through their entire run. Um, both those guys, I, I, actually, I'm not positive about Russo. I know Zions was on John Madden's crew. So, you know, they, they both worked at CBS. I mean, these are guys like crazy years in the business. So there'll never be a bad broadcast as long as those, those two guys are around just because, um, you know, like Gadelli and, and and people of that ilk. They're they just, you know, they're they're hall of fame types at what they do. I thought it was a very good broadcast. Um, I think they have a very good partnership, Burkhart Nelson. They don't step on each other. There's really good chemistry. I thought they were seamless with Aaron Andrews and Tom Rinaldi. I agree with you. I think Olson talks a lot, although the nature of that game may have led to more talking, Chad, just because that game was not right. close, yeah. particularly in the fourth quarter. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of just like the rhythm of the game was off. Again, like if I'm going to be honest, do I feel like Burkhart and Olson? Like, do they feel like a broadcast done by Al Michaels or Buck and Aikman? No, they don't. And again, that's not a knock on them, but they're right. Like They're only in their second year, and it's not going to feel as big as the other guys. That said, to me, I think if you're Fox, you want professionalism, preparation, competence. Those two will give you that all year. I think they'll improve every week, and I have no doubt they'll call a good Super Bowl. Will it be enough to not... Have Tom Brady overtake Greg Olson? No, I mean Tom Brady's making seventy billion dollars from Lachlan Murdoch, but I think Olson, by the end of the year, I think will have himself in a great position because he will have called the biggest games. He'll get great experience and he'll set himself up for for whatever he's going to do. And but, handling but thought, the ball too is uh, I mean, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to You basically like he's handling smart. Like it's Tom Brady, man. Like <laughs> right. You know the reality is like. There are different rules for different human beings. Like, it sucks, but that's life. And, you know, Fox is going to think differently of Tom Brady than they're going to think of any other potential NFL analyst. And you know that by just the money they uh, have given him. So if you're Olsen, you play good soldier as best as you can. Enjoy this year and the great games you're going to get. And it's only going to be good for you. You're only going to get really good leverage down the road, whether that comes at Fox or whether that comes at um, at another network. Did you watch any of the pregames? at all.
2: I did. Joe, one more
0: thought on those guys.
2: You know, that yeah, yeah, please. You they remind me of Eagle and Davis where uh, you're not going to think of them as maybe the uh, the guys most likely to call the Super Bowl, but um, you're going to come away from watching that game with a really low annoyance quotient. Uh, uh, you know what I mean? They,
0: uh, Yeah, although I, f- I feel like to me, and again, I'm sure I'm homering it up here because I Grew up in New York. I've heard Iron Eagle for a long, long time. Iron Eagle to me is a Super Bowl voice. Like, yeah, he's he feels big time. Yeah. Uh, do Eagle and Davis feel as big as Nance and Romo? No, but I think some of that, of course, is that they haven't called the games that Nansen Romo have called.
2: Or Nansen. yeah, Nance has called a Or anybody, years yeah, exactly. Over the last thirty right. years, I right.
1: mean, yeah. yeah,
2: it just you can't expect them to be at that level. But I think the yep. the uh, the the floor for these guys is is pretty high that uh, you you're going yeah, to some broadcasts you're going to think, you know what? I like these guys they are good company on Sunday afternoon. And you really can't ask much more for that. You can't ask them to be more experienced than they are. It's just, uh, you know, it's the way their careers have gone and that's brought them to this moment.
0: The one thing I, you know, I tried for the first week of the year, I usually watch the first two segments of each of the pregame shows. Cause I'm interested in sort of how they bring you back to the season And uh, (laughs) I can tell you this, the one thing I can tell you, Chad, from Fox NFL Sunday, by the way, they have a new studio, which I I feel like they haven't mentioned in the last three minutes. So I'll I'll mention it uh, for them. Um, But otherwise, um, you know, my dream of what I hope the NFL pregame show will be will never be what the actual NFL pregame shows are. I do generally speaking find... The shows would. What is that dream? I just feel like I wish I would get more honesty about the league from these places. I wish they would hit some issues that uh, they're really never going to hit. I wish an owner would be criticized once. I wish they'd have like a real discussion about the uh, the Haslams or Steven Ross or Dan Snyder, but it it never happens. I get it. Like you know, there's another argument that viewers would make, and I think it's totally fair. I get. I'm not the casual viewer here. That like we just want to. We just want to learn about what games are coming up. We just want to be get hyped for our games. So I I, I, I get all that. I will say I find the, the longer shows better, like the NFL Network and ESPN, just because they have more time to get into yeah. more issues. They also have more mouths to feed, so you're going to get a lot more um, people on the set. But yeah, I mean I watched a sampling of it and it just felt, nothing was special or different or unique. It sort of felt like everybody did what they do and and, you know, got you from, from point A to point Lots B. Lots of
2: puns yeah. and uh, guffaws and backslaps.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, always. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. It's amazing to me that still in 2022, we have massive laugh tracks, right, on all these pregame shows. <laughs> the jo- over-the-top jocularity about things that are not nearly funny. And still in 2022, like we always occasionally, one of the shows will have a football on set, right? And they'll throw it around or they'll toss yeah. it. Like, is that to show that it's a
2: football show? I guess so, and that they're fun yeah. guys who like well, to hang out together and toss the football right. around. <laughs> guys like, yeah, they, Phil
0: Sims can still throw They sent
2: Larry away. Fitzgerald on a go route last night at the end of the, uh... Of course, yeah. Program.
0: yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, seeing Schefter, like, putting the wide receiver gloves on to catch balls. I mean, it's, uh... Yeah, I mean all right, we get it. Like if everybody's got testosterone, like dudes, all right, we all understand. You're all tough guys. Like I don't I never really understood the football uh um the you know the the the, the having the football on the set, but uh again, what do I know? You know what I'm saying? Maybe the uh maybe for the athletic I should do these uh, podcasts like having a glove or something. You
2: should track who has a football all year.
0: yeah that's by the way if i start doing that that honestly i should be replaced like that's when you know it's it's over for me that that,
2: if i'm tracking that keep stats on who tosses it's like it's like the uh, nfl guys tracking uh completions in preseason practice
0: (laughs) that's right dr z may uh that's next generation stats right there if you're (laughs) tracking the football all right. Amazon, you know, as we're taping this on Tuesday, people will listen to this on Wednesday. And so, um, you know, it'll be the day before and you'll probably listen to it, obviously, on Thursday and Friday. So you'll you'll listen to this before Amazon's first game and then you'll listen to this after Amazon's first game. So you'll have a, you know, if you're as a viewer, you'll have a sense of, you know, what you thought of how Amazon did for Chargers at, you uh, cheap so chad i want to get to sort of uh, for you like sort of what you're interested in seeing about amazon and let me just say this because you know you know chad one of the one of the things about this podcast we like to do is like we we mentioned alana russo of uh, amazon pr on a weekly basis and <laughs> um i mean once again the amount of press that amazon's getting in the you know business publications another love letter from bloomberg you know we've seen obviously a lot of wall street journal coverage sports business journal i mean what about the boston globe to the Amazon PR staff, how about how about reaching out to one of the great American institutions, maybe <laughs> as opposed to focusing on the uh, on the Wall Street stuff. All right. Anyway, Chad. So for me, very quickly, what I want to see from Amazon, I want to see a great production. But quite frankly, I know I'm going to get a great production. I have immense faith in Fred Godelli, Pierre Musa, yeah. Yeah. Um, Al Michaels is a Hall of Famer. Kirk Kribshie a professional. Kaylee Hartung, Hartung is a professional. I have no doubt that that's going to be. That broadcast is going to look and feel as good as Sunday Night Football, 4:25 p.m., et cetera. So, to me, the biggest or most interesting story about Amazon, I have to be honest, I think it's viewership. How many people are going to tune in, and can they come close to what uh, the Foxes and the CBS has got for Thursday Night Football? That's that's what I'm looking forward to.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, we talked about this with Austin Carp a little bit, and what the what their hopeful numbers are, and and what the uh kind Of speculating on, on what we thought they might be, and uh, I know our friend John Lewis came in and said he thinks it's going to be a lot lower. Um, and yeah. uh, so do I, about yeah, that. I do too. I think he's right. I thought about it after I, you know, uh, saw his tweets about that, and um, there's going to be people who have a hard time finding this. Uh, and you know, we know, we know, uh, Thursday Night Football didn't always have the best reputation for having great matchups. That's obviously changing now. I mean, they've got an absolute gem here to start with the Chargers and Chiefs, but uh, I think it's going to take a little bit of time. And uh, I, I'm curious what their internal expectations are because outwardly, uh, very positive and and uh, almost bold, but uh, inward in, internally, they have to realize that it's going to take a little bit of time for people to adjust, especially older demographics, to adjust to this game uh, being on streaming, even though... You know, regional markets if your team is playing it's gonna it'll be over the air somewhere but uh yeah i think it's uh, i think it's gonna be considerably lower than what we talked about last time
0: yeah i sat on a conference call for their um studio talent marie donahue um sort of heads up amazon prime sports yeah. was on that call and um you know marie is very circumspect she's never really gonna um sort of give you like a Uh, headline quote which is probably in her position smart that's how you pretty much stay in business but the one thing she did say because I asked her about this I said you know the reality is like one of the biggest narratives and I know people hate that word for Amazon this year is what's the viewership right and will people will NFL fans migrate in big numbers from the traditional place they watch these games the Foxes and the CBSes etc to Amazon and she I think gave the right answer if you're an executive that it's week one. We're not going to get over um, – we're not going to overweight whatever the viewership is early. It's a, We have an 11-year deal. It's a long process, and um, you know we're in this for the long haul as a once-in-a-generation kind of opportunity. Um, I, like I get all that, and again, if I was an Amazon executive um, like Marie Donahue, I, that's exactly – probably what i would say i do think though that if the numbers are really really low like um and i'm not even sure exactly what that would be but let's i'm just gonna use this oh, as a a sort of a benchmark yeah let's say it's like seven million or six million something like that you know i do think i don't know what their concern level would be is but i think if you are amazon you gotta then try to counter like what will be a lot of stories about oh man amazon's numbers are super low again I think one of the things that may help them here is they have a great first game you know if it was uh you know Texans Jaguars or something like that I may think oh <laughs> it's man the old NFL Network got, game.
2: that's what that would be
0: <laughs> yeah I mean they have I think they obviously have the standard bear in the AFC in the Chiefs and they have one of the most exciting I think up-and-coming teams in the Chargers so they got the NFL really did them right here in terms of the first game
2: yeah I mean yeah, it they did, and uh, uh, I mean, there aren't more more games that have been uh, when the schedule came out that were more anticipated than this one, so that's going to benefit them. Um, you know, Prime is in what so over 100 million households, I think it's second, yeah, of, second to Netflix, yeah, to Netflix, yeah. Um, so theoretically, they have a big audience to draw from, but
0: uh, we'll they do. S- I mean, the re- you know, the re- I mean, me and you, we know this, and like, I know viewers. No, the hardcore sports fans. can't By the way, I should mention, I think Marie don not I think, Marie Donahue's official position vice president of global sports video for Amazon. The um, the reality is like when it comes to like moving these, um, you know, when games move to like places we don't expect, you know, the true TVs and, and if there's an MLB playoff game on MLB Network as opposed to like Fox, like view, you, you know, like many many viewers millions and millions of viewers they're not aware of this even with all the marketing even with all right. the social media posts like and that's gonna happen uh i guarantee on thursday night there will be literally millions of people who are not aware that amazon now has these exclusive games oh
2: i know it, it, the the media writer will get inundated with questions about where this game is it was actually a lot worse with baseball uh, when you get the game, yes. uh, one game on Peacock, and then a few weeks later you got the Apple TV Plus game or whatever, um, that really frustrated people. But that's a little bit of a different audience. I know the the whole circle encompasses sports fans, but uh, the regional baseball fan uh, was thrown off by uh, the the different streaming deals MLB cut that began this year with the NFL. I think maybe the audience will be a little bit more savvy to this. You know, they had to adjust to like the Thursday night game being on, um, you know, being on uh, NFL network way back when, which was uh, a channel that not everybody had at that point. Uh, So maybe, maybe there's a a little bit more ease of adjustment uh, with this being on a streaming service, but my hunch is there's going to be some confusion here in week one. And uh uh, because the game is so appealing, there's going to be some frustration with it.
0: The uh, As we're taping this, shadow, I'll let you go very soon here. The uh, Fox Sports PR just comes out with the viewership numbers for the NFL doubleheader for them. They averaged 15.4 million viewers for the doubleheader. That's up 11% over last year. Green Bay, Minnesota, that window, 18.5 million. That's what they had number.
2: in 430.
0: Uh, they had, well, they had Green Bay, oh, Minnesota okay. Fox in that, in that window, that at least it went to the, the biggest part of the country. So basically again, my back of the envelope math NFL viewership is going to be, um, going to be up this week. Uh, Mike Mulvihill. By the way, you, you watch Game of Thrones? I Chad? do not. Mike Mulvihill is—he's the hand of the king. He's the monarch's <laughs> closest no advisor. <laughs> yeah, trust me. I'm, this is a good reference by me. So that's Mike Mulvihill, uh, one of the uh, st- strategy vice president types at uh, Fox. So again, um, CBS massive increase for their window. Fox big increase for their window. NBC gets a monster rating for Dallas Bucks, even though the kickoff was way down for bills rams so i assume monday night football will do pretty good looks like the nfl is going to be up the machine continues to uh to roll on and um again there's nothing else like the nfl
2: once again we've proven that the nfl is popular
0: yeah but again it's like there really is no other entertainment option in the united states like the nfl nothing comes close to bringing as many people together, nothing comes close as communal viewing. I don't know what the Emmys got, Chad, Uh, you know, this, it'll come out, but you know, once upon a time, you know, we're of the age where we, we were alive on this, like the Emmys and the Oscars, like, you know, like those were like the biggest communal appointment viewings, looking at, uh, you know, just insane, like 30, 40 million people. Yeah. All that stuff's gone too. It's like the NFL is the only thing left in, you know, legacy television. That pulls these kind of numbers. I'm actually looking at this. looks like, uh, oh, that's last year's Emmys, which was uh, 7.4 million people. Um, Wow. It's amazing. It's amazing to me just in our generation that, uh, just in like a generation or two, that some of these other 10-pole events um, have just really significantly dropped. And the NFL, you know, whether it's the Olympics or everything else, the NFL is the one it's the one thing that stands the test of time, which is why I always—I think both of us were in agreement here in 2015, 2016, when you had all these people saying, "I'll never watch the NFL again." Oh, social justice messaging—I'll never watch this league again. Ever. First of all, either you—you were—you know—you—you you were either bsing, or you probably weren't watching a ton of NFL football to start with. That league just continues to roll, man.
2: I think the, the over under on people who stuck by that, who claimed they were going to do it nationwide, is probably about five.
0: Well, I mean, listen, obviously, you know, and I should be careful with my absolutes. Yes, of course, there were some people who like um, left the NFL like in 2016, just in the same way there are some people who believe like aliens from planet Rigel seven are going to come and take us away. Like they are. Yeah, exactly. In terms of (laughs) large mass, like the numbers don't lie in a world of cord cutting cord nevers streaming and direct to consumer getting bigger the NFL numbers continue to be just incredible. Um, And the league had a very, very good week with some interesting broadcast stories. Uh, Chad, anything else uh, that you want to uh, hit on before we, uh, before we get out of here?
2: No, man, it's all NFL this week. Uh, I, 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 unlike you, I don't pay a second of attention to the college football. Saturday is gearing up for Sunday.
0: Yeah, I do. I will say that. uh, We don't care in New New England. Yeah, yeah, no, I get it. And I grew up in New York. So like, It's not a big college football hotbed, but I I recognize how important it is to so many people in the country. And I will say my trip to LSU did give me, I I will always be thankful that I was able to uh, see a night game at LSU. I saw LSU Alabama because it really did give me like an absolute true appreciation of how people care about this sport, particularly in the South. And as a, as a Yankee, it was, uh, it was cool to be able to see that with my, own eyes did you so come I out of it with
2: it. a fake southern accent like Brian Kelly
0: I should have actually I did I did have some <laughs> uh etouffee and some other really great stuff uh thankfully in the LSU tailgate uh, area but uh but yeah like you like you know growing up like I would watch college football but it, it didn't have nearly the same kind of uh meaning to me as like uh Mets Yankees and uh you know Jets Giants Bills et cetera. did alright Chad Finn Boston Globe media writer general columnist I always appreciate his time. He will certainly be back on this podcast, and uh, we'll be reading his stuff on the Globe website and paper, as well as uh, seeing his thoughts on Twitter. Print Thanks, edition, Chad. Thanks, man. Take care. Print edition. Always buy the print edition. <laughs> Chad Finn, everybody. Okay. As I said at the top, Alex Flanagan is a really, really interesting person in this business. If you are, I would even say, like a casual sports fan, you have seen her at one point. On television, her her resume is like a who's who in sports broadcasting. She worked multiple Olympics for NBC Sports, covering a variety of uh, of sports. There, certainly saw her during the Michael Phelps uh, era. Served as a sideline reporter for Notre Dame football games. She worked for a long time for the NFL Network, and you saw her on their Thursday night football games. She's she was a reporter on NBC's Football Night in America pregame show, and then also worked at ESPN for uh, a number of years doing college football, college World Series, NBA playoffs, etc. Okay, that was then. Today, she is now an agent. Her formal title, senior vice president and partner at the Family Sports Marketing and Talent Agency, that's a uh, that's an agency in California. I would probably call it a, a boutique agency, but certainly a growing one. So this is a very fascinating trajectory here from someone who was on air at the highest levels of sports broadcasting and now is representing people as an agent. And with that, I'm pleased to be joined by Alex Flanagan. Alex, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast.
1: Hi, Richard. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. Um, all right, so as I was telling you um, prior to starting and by the way yeah this is a uh audio only podcast doc so apologies for uh you're dressed like a professional unlike myself so so my apologies for uh, no, no, i put on a little
1: makeup <laughs> for you this morning i'm disappointed it, it did, i know sorry <laughs>
0: sorry about the yeah it's my it's my fault um so it, let me know if i have my sort of chronology of you correct here it's it's 2019 or so you've worked in the business for a long time you're assigned the aaf spring yeah. football league yeah God, may, may God, may God, may God, may you rest in peace, yeah. uh, league. Um You've been on the road for many, many years as a sports broadcaster. You have a family. My guess is, if I'm going to do the math right, at least a couple teenagers. Mm, I have um, one on
1: our way to college in a couple weeks.
0: Okay, so so in, in terms of the timing there, so like we're talking about uh, late high school yeah. years. So I'm wondering, at is it at that point that you... Start to think about a transition or had you been thinking about a transition for a while and then in 2019 sort of it all comes to a head?
1: So I think I had been growing um, increasingly frustrated, I think, with the business of sports media um, as an aging female. I think in my 40s, I really started realizing just that the lack of longevity as you age as a female in the business is actually a real thing. And I think some of the jobs that I lost or, or things that happened in my career kind of really made that um, clear to me. And so I think I decided to start maybe, maybe planted the seed a little bit of like, hey, what am I going to do for my next, you know, um, 20, 30 years of a career if if there's no place for me or if I'm going to have to claw my way to a job, you know, at the age of 50? Like, I want to be really working until I'm like 80. And how can I use all this experience? Um and connections and credibility that I've built to transition in a job where I can, I think, have a little bit of a say over my own destiny. I think that was a big part of it, of being able to control my own um, future and not just rely on an executive who might like me or not like me (laughs) on a certain day um, in terms of my job. So I think just a number of different things that had happened in in my career that were a bit frustrating, a lot of changes and things at the NFL Network and and, um, different things just kind of had me looking. And then um, the AAF was probably a final nail <laughs> in the coffin of just like, I think, feeling a little bit of the disillusionment of the business and just feeling really frustrated. You know, a lot of us walked away from that. It was actually an incredible team that had been assembled um, for that. And it was great people that we were working with. But, um, you know, the majority of us didn't get paid fully for that job. And and that was you know, <laughs> <Wow>. a bummer. <laughs> so that was just kind of, I think, left a bad taste in my mouth. I think overall, In the business, and then as you mentioned, I had my oldest daughter was starting high school. I had been on um, a really crazy schedule for a lot of years, and I think I look back on it now and I'm like, wow, I don't know how I did that. Um, You know, there was a period of time for, gosh, probably five years where I was traveling um, on. I would go in for Thursday night football, so I'd travel. I'd usually have like meetings on Tuesday via phone, travel in Wednesday, go to NFL practices, um, do production meetings first thing Thursday morning, do a Thursday night game. Mike Mayock and I would turn around and get up at 4 in the morning, fly into either South Bend, Indiana, or Chicago, um, drive up to Notre Dame, meet all day with um, Brian Kelly and players and do production meetings Friday night, and then do a college game Saturday, and then fly out either late that night on Saturday, if I could catch a flight out of Chicago or first thing Sunday morning to an NFL game Report on football night in America, try to get home if I could that night, if not the next morning, and fly into Los Angeles where I hosted a show um, in the studio for the NFL network and then drove home to San Diego and started it all again on Tuesday. So, um, yeah, I think I was just really burnt out to um, a, a long winded <laughs> answer there, but ultimately just ready to see what I could do and what I could try next.
0: Yeah, no, it's a podcast. Go as long as you wish. All right. So, um, so you're, you're, you're already like intellectually thinking about a career shift, and that's certainly the case uh, in a post-COVID universe. We're, we're talking millions and millions of people are doing it now. You are a little ahead of the curve there. So, does an agency like the family recruit you, or do you have to be proactive and try to find a place where you may be able to um, transition mm-hmm. into this new career?
1: Yeah. So, I think to be candid with you, like I was a little lost for a while. Like I decided I was going to make this transition and and just take a break and be at home for a little bit and just figure out what I could do. And I kind of thought, you know, I'm going to bet on myself and I know there's something out there and I'm going to figure it out, but I didn't really know what it was. So I um, at the time had um, launched a youth sports um, kind of content and website called I Love to Watch You Play and was really diving into that and and just kind of figuring out different avenues that I could go. And um, a guy named Steve Astafan who I had known for many years, um, our sons were in preschool together. My husband had worked with him for a number of years, and we were kind of in the same social circles Um, in San Diego, I reached out to him and um, he was a managing partner at Wasserman. Um, He had a business called The Family um, way back when he was kind of considered one of the first action sports agents. Um, launched his business called The Family. Casey Wasserman acquired that business. And he helped grow Wasserman, um, gosh, I think for 17 years um, there, and then decided to leave and kind of um, restart the family. And as you mentioned, go back to more of a boutique agency, and um, do, do kind of find his passion again. And I've sat down with him just to pick his brain on where he thought I could go. And he was like, you know what, would you ever consider being an agent? And I was like, huh, maybe like, Joel Siegel, who's an NFL agent, had mentioned it to me years ago and I had said, no, no way. And then I kind of thought about it and I thought, you know, actually it could be kind of an interesting blend. Um, and I think this was a unique opportunity and that I could come in, not just as an agent, but really as somebody who is helping build this business um, from the ground up. So, um, you know, have a say in just kind of how the culture is and people that we're hiring and divisions that we're launching and, and really have a little bit more of a robust role, as well as kind of create um, this broadcast and media department the way I wanted to. So I said yes. Okay. <laughs>
0: All right, that's good. So this is a good segue into like getting into now what you do on a daily basis. We will get back to ageism in a little bit. I do want to ask you about that for sure. All right, so in my position, um, I have talked to a lot of a lot of people who represent people on the business. Um, I've talked to a lot of agents over the last ten plus years, um, which is why Alex, I probably should jump out of my window right now. <laughs> um, so the the, the like in every other profession, there are some very, very good ones. There are some very awful ones. Some have legal credentials. They are lawyers. Others are not. Um, the job seems to be um, uh, have many, many different facets, although I think at its core, at least I hope, is that you, you are trying to do your best for a certain client, um, whoever or whomever that client acquisition is. So um, let's sort of start here. You, you have had agents— throughout your career, you have been a high profile broadcaster. So I think if nothing else, you have a, you have a large sort of frame idea of what agents do, but you've never been in the nitty gritty. So when you start to um, either take on clients or you start to think about how you're going to take on clients, like how do you educate yourself, um, you know, to sort of get into the business, even though you have some very unique experience from being someone that, agents have negotiated for?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think, um, I think that there's a lot of um, n- kind of misnomers about agents. And I think I've learned a lot now on this side of the business. Um, the agents that I have had typically would kind of do a contract and that would kind of be it. Like we would negotiate something and then that would kind of be it. And I felt really intimidated. I think it it's kind of ironic, like the higher up you get, you sign with a big agency and you're kind of like, oh my gosh, I've made it. You're super excited. You think that your career is going to take off. And actually it's almost opposite. Like in a lot of circumstances, you feel kind of intimidated to call this person. You don't really feel like you have a right to demand, you know, That they share conversations that they had with the executives about you. And so I think there's just a lot of transparency lacking in really what the business is. So I think first and foremost, an agent is a negotiator, right? I mean, that's the key um, role that they're playing for you is negotiating your contract. And so like you mentioned, some people are attorneys, Um, Certainly an attorney should always be a part of the process. I'm not an attorney. We have a general counsel in our office that is a part of every contract negotiation we do because ultimately the client should know what they're signing. And I'm so surprised at how many people I talk to on a regular basis who have no idea what they've signed. (laughs) I mean, I I would say like 75% of people I speak to don't really understand what they've signed. So, um, You know, I think really understanding like what rights you're giving up and and kind of what you're um, negotiating and what you're doing is a really big part of um, guiding somebody. But then to your point, I mean, I think there's all these different verticals that an agent becomes. I think a career strategist, like a kind of a career coach is a big part of it. I think a, a psychologist is part of it. Um, and a marketing person, you know, I think um, talent has changed a lot over the years. Certainly since I got into the business, I think you know now you really do have to be um, a personality that that can kind of um, you know have your own social media media following and have your own brand built, really. And I think there's so many people that want to do this job that you really have to figure out um, what is authentic about you and and what kind of can you maximize or do to maximize your brand and really build your brand. So I think that's the other part of it is really helping people from the beginning figure out like what what is your brand what do you want to represent and how do we kind of go for um what you want and and what is really true to you and will make you happy in your career and then and then just kind of looking out for people i think a lot of it too is just connecting them with like okay do you need a stylist do you need a makeup artist do you need a photographer like how can we how can we strategize to build Um, you know, a more robust career for you. Um, Finally, I think I'm really passionate, just given my path is I really did feel like I woke up at a certain age and was like, wow, like, I've been a mom and had a job. And those were really the only two things I could manage just because they took so much of my time and energy. And I haven't really built much for myself. Um, or thought about myself, and so I was just servicing these companies and and trying to keep up with it. And there was nobody looking out for me or really thinking like, "Hey, what's next?" or "How do we build your ten-year, fifteen-year, twenty-year plan?" Um, so that when you are, you know, in your forties and fifties, you've kind of built a career that's meaningful. That um, an executive can't just say like, "Oh, we can replace you with somebody because they're cheaper."
0: How. D- Uh, at the start, did you build a client base? How did you go out and get clients?
1: So I think networking, um, Aditi Kinkabwala, who i had worked with at the NFL Network, um, I had called her, I remember driving up to LA, I was literally like dialing for dollars. And it's funny, because a lot of my friends are like, Oh, that's great. But like, you know, like, they're not going to come sign with me. And I didn't necessarily expect them to, because they had, you know, agents that um, you know, were very proven and had been with people for a while. But I had kind of called a lot of people and told them what I was doing and just asked them to refer me or, you know, um, put my name out there. And so Aditi Kinkawala had bumped into Kimberly Martin, who I had met years earlier at a football game. And um, actually, had, she had given me her card and um, I had kept it. And Aditi was like, hey, there's this girl named Kimberly. She's really looking for somebody. I think you'd be great for her. I want to connect you. And so we connected and um, and that was my first client. And so, you know, she took a chance on me, which which I appreciated. And you know, I've been able to kind of build from there pretty quickly after I had a number of women that reached out to me that I had, you know, kind of mentored or or they knew me through football or Notre Dame or different areas of my career um, and were looking for an agent. so it's it's been, been really, really rewarding for me. Um, I feel like the people I'm representing are far more talented than I ever was. <laughs> it's like when I see like how Britt D'Onofrio can write or Kimberly Martin can um, can you know go on air, I, I'm in awe of them because I think they they're really, really talented people. So um, so I feel really blessed to be able to kind of be part of their career and and just help guide them, and that they trust me enough to um, listen to what I tell them.
0: Yeah, Brit Britroll is a colleague of mine at the athletic. Although does not know I'm interviewing you actually. I think she's Yeah, on- she's on maternity leave. Uh, maternity leave, I should have said. There you go. That's no vacation <laughs> first of all. She has it's the opposite baby of a vacation. Boy, I'm
1: so excited for it.
0: I did that. I didn't know. Yeah, I should have known she was on that leaf. I think I did know that. Um, And Kimberly A. Martin, uh, who has been on this podcast before, uh, uh, incredibly talented uh, person. Okay, so you you're you're building clients. um, Those were, uh, you know, those were your initial ones. One of the things, Alex, that you know, has happened in this business, it might have even happened to you is, you know, agents, uh, clients poach clients from other places. It, it's, a, it's a weird business in that uh, other agents will either tell the client directly or a client's friend how great this agency is or how much this client can do for you. I don't know if you're at a point yet where you're feeling any kind of uh, heat from other agents, but um, I guess this is a way to ask you, what have you learned from your own experiences in dealing with agents, maybe particularly the bad stuff that will help guide you as you sort of head forward now on the other side?
1: Yeah, I think a couple things. I mean, I think transparency is really key. Like I think I'm a, a middleman between an employer and a talent. And I think the talent deserves to know kind of transparently what conversations I'm having. So I think that was something I didn't enjoy when I had agents was just like, hey, shoot me straight. Like I want to know what the conversation is. Um, so I think just transparency in terms of even what I'm doing for my clients, like, Hey, I reached out to this person, you know, this, this, is. these are things we're doing on your behalf, so that, you know, people really understand um, what we're being paid for. Um, I think, um, I think I learned, um, gosh, there's so many different things that I've learned. Um, I think I've learned, I guess, just that, I'm really a partner, I think, with my clients. Um, and, you know, I think I don't have all the answers for them, but I think where I'm really good at doing my job is at my core, I'm a reporter and I love information and I'm very curious and I love the reporting skill. And I think that's what's made me really successful as an agent is being able to figure out how to get to people, who to talk to, how to put it all together, and then using, you know, the relationships that I have. I mean, the nice thing that I, I do have, I think, is enough um, credibility in the industry where people will take my phone calls. And, and I do have a, a certain amount of trust, I think, with a lot of the TV executives that, I mean, it's funny, like, you know, some of the people that are hiring now are people that were PAs on shows that I worked on or different things. So, it's, it's a really... Wow kind of small circle. So, yeah, I think that's, what's kind of unique about me too is a lot of the conversations I'm having are not as an agent calling who like came up, you know, at an agency in a mail room. They're really, they're my friends and colleagues who, you know, I worked with. And like you said, did super bowls and did Olympics with, and were really like in the trenches with, and, and now, you know, they're kind of more my peers and my friends than they are me calling to ask, to give somebody a job. Um, yeah so i think more just kind of the the i think an agent should really be your partner and i think you know so i talk to people weekly that are confused and wonder like hey is this right that like i'm i, I don't really talk to my agent <laughs> i'm like no like i think demanding um you know you're paying somebody for a service right and you should know what that service is it's it's like anything else i mean i like the job sometimes to being like an interior decorator, or real estate agent, like you're hiring an expert to help guide you and give you input on things. And you should kind of know, um, you know, exactly what that entails. So I, I think if I could go back and do things differently, I think it would be understanding that component of it, that like, I had a right to know and ask, and I should have demanded um, a lot more just transparency and asking people because you are paying a a lot of money. And I think that, you know, unfortunately, I think some of, um, you know, the bigger groups, like you can end up having a lot of people and and you can get lost in there. um, You know, if you are not advocating for yourself.
0: All right, so a couple. Let's get under the hood a little bit. A couple of things. Uh, traditionally, um an agent fee for sports broadcasting, sports media, ten percent. Basically, is that correct? Correct. Okay, so would that ten percent be on everything you negotiate, or is it ten percent on everything I make for a year because you are my quote unquote representative?
1: I think it kind of depends based on the agency and and based on the agent. You know, I think. Um, it's interesting because I do think I understand it a little better now on this side of the business. Like it felt like a lot of your salary when I was the talent. And then on this side of it, I'm like, wow, it's not that much when you actually consider that, <laughs> like, you know, it's funny. Yeah. Realistically, like in California, attorneys are billing at what, like seven or $800 an hour. So, yep. you know, just, just getting our attorney involved in things is, you know, a- an investment from our standpoint. But I think if you're doing it right, um, you know you're really you you know you're you're talking to your clients really regularly you're pitching them regularly for you know our our agency is really believes our founder Steve Aston really believes in kind of the 360 model which is really we're overseeing and kind of the CEO of your whole career and we're really want to be part of your marketing and and part of your work and your platform and and do all kinds of you know kind of take this bigger picture view of you so Um, Steve works with um, a musician named Machine Gun Kelly, and I think he's a really great example of how our agency has been able to kind of maximize our skill set. You know, obviously he has his music career and all those different verticals, but we just launched um, a nail polish line for him called Undone. Um, through our kind of other sister agency called Enlisted. So, we have the ability, I think, to look at a talent and really say, like, okay, not only do you have your platform as a musician, but what are some things that you're interested in that we can also build a business around and use our skill set? And I think Steve's done a really good job at our agency of bringing together a lot of people um, who really are, are kind of the anti agents, if you will. Like, a lot of us are people that have worked in our industries for a long time um, on the other side of the business, not as an agent. And so we're bringing the skill set of the industry and the business um, to the agency world and and kind of doing it a little differently than maybe you might find at some of the bigger agencies where you kind of come up and you're only an agent. You learn the business of an agent, but you've never been in a newsroom. You don't know what an assignment editor needs from you. You have no idea what it means to turn an article or be on live TV or what the travel feels like or any of that. So I think, you know, we kind of are attacking it a little differently.
0: Okay. When it... Um, when it comes, we won't use a specific example, but, uh, if you were negotiating with a, an ESPN or a Fox sports, a CBS and NBC sports, okay. Um, they're usually at a lot of these places is like what's called a talent office. What Mm -hmm. like their job is to negotiate, literally negotiate front facing talent. Um, a lot of times the people in that talent office have a legal background. They're either lawyers or, um, or certainly contract experts, you know, of course, in addition to the talent office, there are executives who will let the talent office know like what they think of the talent or if mm-hmm. they're really high on the talent, et cetera. So without obviously – you know, I, mean, I don't want you to give up anything proprietary. But could you just let my listeners sort of get a sense of, okay, what are those negotiations like? You call one of these big places. There's somebody on the other line. Like are you literally going back and forth and saying – you know, my, my client would like to do this, this, and this, we feel like this is a fair salary number for this give. Cause people have no idea. Um, if they're watching somebody who they know on television or something like that, like there's a whole behind the scenes world of how this person like has, uh, structured their contract. There's many times they're contracted for just a certain amount of dates. Like you have 40 dates for uh, your, uh, during the year that you have to do. So, um, give people if you could just like a maybe like a cliff notes version of how the negotiating process works
1: well, first of all, people should know that it's not nearly as glamorous as you think it is to be in TV. <laughs> it doesn't. <pay. laughs> it doesn't pay. I tell people, I'm like you. You kind of starve until you don't, right? There's not a lot of right. unless you're unless you're honestly
0: unless you're a former NFL quarterback who's right. trying to get an analyst job. Then it's a pretty good. Game.
1: Right, and even then, I mean, I think those are the ones that are really written about, right? The the right. Um, the Troy Eggmans and the Joe Box and 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 that gets a lot of. Coverage, right? And and I think that's, you know, ultimately when you have a situation like that, which was really unique recently, where you are able to really leverage a couple different companies, and you have a company like Amazon you know, coming into the world and really having the budget and wanting to make a splash and wanting to pay so that they get that credibility right away. Um, it creates, right. you know, a, a different space in the marketplace where we saw numbers that, you know, are kind of we've never seen before. Um, I think so. There's there's a number of different ways. I think that it, it goes down. I mean, if you're you have the luxury of being Joe Buck, <laughs> you, you're able to leverage that and, and um, make a very nice living. I think otherwise, you know, I think a lot of times What people maybe don't know also is, you know, companies have budgets, right? It's just like any place else. Like you have a certain amount of money that you can spend on a show or, or, you know, different things. And you've got to kind of figure out where you can operate in that budget. If you have a talent that um, you really want and they can't, you can't fit into that budget, then you've got to figure out like where you can take that money from um, and bring it over, you know? So I think, I think a lot of times like the executives are tasked also with you know, they're given a budget. They're given what they're allowed to spend, and they have to make certain um, allowances if they're going to go outside of that. So, you know, I think it's it's interesting with talent. You have to be willing to, um, you know, you have negotiating is an interesting thing, right? Like ultimately, you know, the best, um, I guess, you know to you know, you have to really understand your client, like what they want, like, are they willing to walk away from a deal? I mean, I think those are some of the conversations that I have a lot with my clients to understand, like when I'm negotiating on their behalf, um, what do they want? Like I've had agents blow up deals for me um, when that was not something I wanted. Like I had an agent get a, um, had one of my offers when I was working in television get pulled off the table and it was terrible cuz i was a young mother and like my husband and i were not in a position to not have my salary so i had to go back and like fix the whole situation that my agent like kind of blew up and i had never instructed wow. him to do that you know so i think i'm really sensitive with that now with my clients of like explaining to them like hey we can ask for that for sure but like what what are you willing to risk and i think you know so we have a lot of conversations i think around that like what's you know, okay, are you willing to if they say no, and they get we we piss them off? like, um, Are you willing to walk away from that? So I think just educating them sometimes um, on it. But ultimately, you know, I don't like it to be an adversarial, um, you know, relationship, like really, you're trying to really help an employer and your client. Um, figure out how to have a really great relationship ultimately. And I think it's like, if, you know, um, you know, don't they say like it, it, neither side should ever feel like they got exactly what they wanted. Right. Like a yeah, right. Is both sides <laughs> go away, like feeling like, okay, it's fair, but not, you know, um, you know, didn't get it exactly. And I think you have to be careful the other way too, because I think, You know, I think this kind of happened to me, too. I think if you have an agent that demands too much, like the company eventually starts looking at you and says, like, hey, they're making too much money. And so, you know, I think kind of analyzing like what's fair and and what are your long-term objectives, like each client is different. You know, maybe a client needs to maximize a contract um, right away for a few years. Like maybe it's a a way longer play and they want to be at a company for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. And so I think those are the conversations I'm having a lot with my clients is just understanding like what's the long-term goal. Like I'm I'm really... um, big on like looking at the end point and then working backwards. Do Have you
0: found that um, places like DraftKings or um, like multimedia um, types of uh, companies like uh, The Ringer or Meadowlark or um, I'm just trying to think of like, you know, obviously the Amazons and the Apples. I'm trying to think of non-legacy yeah. media. What have they meant for your potential clients? Like, is the market now better because these places exist? And I'll sort of follow up on that in that while they are all options, um, you probably also have clients that probably want to be part of well-known, established brands. So there is a downside risk in that. Are you okay working for a DraftKings if your dream was to work at ESPN or Fox Sports? But how how do you sort of see that in your position, given that in some ways, at least for front facing broadcast type talent, there really are, there is a lot of sort of places out there that's not quote unquote traditional television anymore.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it, it cuts both ways. I mean, I think it's an amazing time to be doing the job now because I think there are so many outlets, right? Like, I don't want to date myself, but like, I got into this business, I got out of college and I like got in my car and I drove to local TV stations and dropped off like a tape trying to get on air. Like, really, <laughs> I mean, and you had to have back then to even get that tape made. I interned at my local NBC station and I That's had right. a unionized photographer, like shoot it and then make friends with an editor. <laughs> like, I, you know, that was kind of how you did it. So, I mean, the fact that you can now like take an iPhone and you can create your own channel and you can do your own like anything you want is so cool that you can reach this whole audience and build your own audience. And you're not, um, you're not dependent on like some executive that gets to decide your future. And I love like Pat McAfee is a great example of that. Like, you know, he was a guy that maybe doesn't fit the mold exactly quote unquote of like what you want the analyst to be. Like, he's not a big name quarterback or he's not a big enough name to have that job. And so he just went out and did it on his own and really proved found this market that really, um, you know, is is beneficial in the gaming space of where he became very valuable to a, an organization. And I think so you can kind of create what you want. So I think that's the, the upside of it. I think the downside is the saturation of it has really changed in that, like the, I think, good old days of broadcasting where, you know, the talent was really treated well, and there were a couple big marquee events and you were on that. Um, you know, I mean, I even think like of Notre Dame football, like when I was on it, however many years ago that was like, it was still a really, um, appointment watching like very, um, you know, it was just very special still to have that, um, on TV. And I think that's changed a lot too. I mean, I feel like I look at my own children and what they consume and the content they watch and like, it's very rare that they sit down and like watch a show or watch a game, um, and just watch the whole thing from start to finish on a TV. Right. (laughs) So I think um, I think while there's a lot of opportunities, I think kind of finding your lane and figuring it out has become a little bit more difficult. But there's still, I mean, there's still at the top of it all, I think there's still... You know, we we talk a lot about streaming and linear and all these different things. I mean, I think there's still for a while, the linear TV stations of ESPN is still ESPN, right? If you're in sports broadcasting and you want to reach the pinnacle, there's a couple things that you're going to do. And I think those still exist. I think the nice thing is there's other opportunities. So ESPN Plus now, like there's opportunities for some of my clients to call games there, whereas maybe they wouldn't have been able right. to do a job on ESPN2 or on ESPN. So um, there's more places to cut your teeth.
0: Do you? um, I don't know if you want to share how many clients you have, but is there a point where you have to cut it off? Like at a certain point, you're just one person. Um, It seems very clear, just based on our the first thirty minutes we've talked, that you really have a holistic viewpoint of your clients. You want to, you know, you don't want to just be an agent who, like, um, like you said, that you can't call into some nameless face. Like you want to be involved in your clients' um, life. So at a certain point, like, you know, I don't know if you can do twenty five clients. Like, do you? Uh, is there... I don't know. Is there a, is there a sort of a point or a number where like you have to cut it off if you want to be the type of agent that you want to be?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think building for me, I've been pretty slow to build my roster, if you will, because I'm really, um, it's important to me to have a very diverse roster. And so I want, and, and I don't mean just like uh, ethnically, ethnically diverse. <laughs> I mean like age diverse and talent diverse and like people that really have different skill sets. So, you know, that's why I think I have, um, you know, a, a, a female NFL reporter at ESPN and a female baseball writer at The Athletic. Or, um, you know, I, I recently signed Shep Messing, who is an analyst um, for the MLS, yeah. who's you know in his that's 70s. Right. And, uh, and that's never right. before yeah. had an agent, although he has been an agent himself.
0: <laughs> wow, that's interesting. Um,
1: and so for me, like I look at um, talent a lot of, I think the first thing I ask myself is, well, first of all, I'm like, do I believe in them? Um, And do they have the intangibles that I know you have to have to make it and be successful in this business? And then secondly, I think I look at a client and say like, can I help them? And like, can I actually, you know, help um, add value to what they're doing? And then thirdly, and I I say this really directly, I think to a lot of my clients, it's like, if you don't find value in having an agent, then like, you shouldn't have an agent. Because if you're going to be frustrated that you're paying somebody and, and you don't really like, you're just getting one because you think that they can help you. Like you really shouldn't have an agent. So you should be at a point in your career, like where you really want a partner, where you really believe that you're paying for a service and you're paying for me because I'm worth it to you. And, and there's a value in just getting my feedback and my opinion and, and, um, and my network and all that, you know? So I think those are, those are probably the things that I really look for in, you know, in signing a client, but I, I've, I've been kind of, I think, um, very intentional about making sure that I don't have people that are competing for jobs. I think it's inevitable um, that they will because the air is very rare, I think, at the top. So, you know, there's jobs yeah. that open up that a lot of clients want. Um, but I think that, you know, I don't want to be an agency that I have, you know, two anchors or three anchors that are going for the same job at Sports Center and like if one of them gets it, it's great, because we still get the commissions. Or if the other one gets it, it's, it's equally great, because we still get the commissions. <laughs> you know, like, I, I really holistically, like you said, that's, that's my approach. And that I really want to, I just, I'm old enough now where it's more, um, it, it's not just about the job and the money, right? Like, I really believe in being able to help people and really trying to help them figure out and maximize their careers.
0: A couple more things. By the way, this is so random that you mentioned Shep Messing. Did you have you ever read his book, The Education of American?
1: (laughs) Yeah. There it it is. That that
0: was one of the that it's crazy. You said that was one of the first sports books I ever read. It is a great book. I would love Pele. I could read anything about Pele, and. uh, it's crazy. Like I, I literally remember that book and remember it being one of the first books I ever read. So, and as uh, you can't, obviously people can't see, but Alex just held up a hard uh, cover copy. It's of that, so, so crazy. And like getting to work All with right, she- like that's him a-
1: for me is really cool because he's so different. Totally different he's client. He's teaching me than so like, much. You know, and he's like, yeah. I mean, to just read his history, like, you know, he was, he was an Olympian, um, you know, in the 1970s in Munich, yes. In Munich. Munich,
0: Munich or uh Munich. Yeah, or Montreal. One of them. Yeah. He's
1: Jewish, Crazy. so he was he was there. They were scared that he might be part of the hostage situation in that Olympics. That's correct. I mean his yeah. stories and his history and his legacy are um are incredible, right? So like for incredible. me incredible, <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. The Cosmos were like I mean, nobody's going to know this now, like especially if you're like a 25 year old. Like the Cosmos that Messing played for, like they were the big, they were bigger than the Yankees. Like these guys would go yeah, to no, like Studio
1: 54, I mean, it's really old school. Like, Studio 54 Dyer. in New York. <laughs> they,
0: yeah, they were like they were like Mick, yeah Mick Jagger. They were like partying with Mick Jagger and like people like that. It's crazy how big at one yeah, moment yeah. of time so like they were. so for me, were. it's
1: just really fun. Like I think you know I enjoy people and I enjoy stories and I enjoy. um I think pitching people and pitching their stories. And I think, you know, that's, I think that's what I'm good at also is just kind of understanding like, okay, how do you take a talent and where could you use them and how could you utilize them and how could you take his whole skill set? I mean, I think a lot of times in our business, that's what's missed is it's such a copycat business and people just grab people and throw them in things and they want them to be, you know, they want them to be what they, they want them to be Troy Aikman or they want them right. to be Chris Con. Worth, you know, and you're like, well, no, like you're, you're this person, how do we formulate and shape something cool and new and innovative, that's authentic to you that an audience would resonate with?
0: All right, uh, two more sort of things for you. One, uh, you, you, I mean, you're certainly welcome to bury anybody by name, if you want, I don't, I don't think you're going to. So, and nor do you have to, but I think it would be educational for my audience. If you could tell me your worst experience with one of your agents, you don't have to name the names, but it'll give people just a sense of like when things go bad, like what happens here?
1: Well, first I'll say I had some, I had some really great agents early on in my career. Um, and I think as a talent, you kind of there, you you alluded to this earlier, like you kind of move up the ladder, right? So you sign with somebody that's kind of smaller and then you're talked into like going with a bigger company And so you kind of move on from agents. And I think I probably, in a weird way, like regret leaving some of my early agents who I probably could have grown with and and now seeing what they're doing, they've become very successful. I was just early on with them. Um, So I definitely got kind of lured into signing with some of the bigger agencies. Um, Yeah, so I think I I had a, a situation where an agent really mismanaged a relationship of mine um, and ultimately like was negotiating for another client. Um, uh, we were going after kind of the same position and um, he was negotiating on behalf of another client. And I found out he really wasn't even having conversations on my behalf. He had kind of passed it off to another person in his office. And so I think just a real lack of transparency there. Um, and I guess ultimately like giving somebody the reins of your career and then they really didn't treat it um like your career, you know, and realizing like one, you know, one bad negotiation or or one thing that an agent does can derail a a talent's career. You know, I had a conversation the other day with an executive who will remain nameless, but he mentioned something about like being so agitated by the agent that he's not, you know, he doesn't want to work with that agent's clients anymore. And I thought, wow, like that's, that's, that's really like, you're missing the mark if like, it becomes about the agent. And now like the executive doesn't want to work with that agent because they're so difficult. Like, yeah. So I think just ultimately it's, it's a disservice if um, you know, to a client, if the agent isn't really, um, I, I guess I just go back to transparency. Really. I think that's what it's all about is I think it's really hard to have honest conversations sometimes with people, especially talent. I mean, I think, you kind of find across the board people that get into um, the on-air side of things are often like type A personalities. They're, you know, it's a very fragile business in many ways because you're being told um, judgments about what you look like and what you sound like. And it, it can, it, can feel very personal. Right. And I think you have to kind of figure out how to take that feedback. And then you're on social media and you have people that are judging you and being mean to you (laughs) and all kinds of things. So I think being able to have a partner who can gently tell you like, okay, you know, this is what you have to improve on, or this is where you're really good. Or like, this is where you have to be patient. Um, You know, this is coming next, or here's what you have to do to get here. Okay. It sounds good that you want that job, but like, here's what it takes to get that job. Like, I am learning that like, I never want to be a roadblock in a client's dream. I, I want to support that dream, but I'm also here sometimes to be like, okay, if you want to do that, awesome, but here's what it's going to take in my opinion for you to get there. So, okay, let's do that. But, but you know, here are the steps that I think you're going to need to, to take to get there.
0: All right. I want to, um, I did want to um, get back to this because you mentioned this earlier and that's, uh, that's ageism. Um, the, the, the reality of the sports business, I guess it's a little bit better now, but the reality of the sports business has always been that women are not allowed to age on television versus men. I'll do, I'll do a tiny caveat and say, yes, like there is Doris Burke now. And like, yes, uh, Beth Mullins is there. And yes, uh, Michelle Tafoya worked into her fifties. Uh, okay. But like the reality is like, I can give you 7,000 examples of that with men. I live in Toronto, Canada, as everybody now knows on this podcast. One of the biggest stories in Canada right now is a woman named Lisa Laflamme who worked at CTV uh, for many, many years. One of the best and biggest journalists in Canada, it accomplished a, absurdly acclaimed career. Um, they got rid of her at age 58 with two years left on her uh, contract, replaced her with a younger man. The ratings had nothing to do with it. Uh, management as usual. Tried to bullshit their way through until it became a nationally bad PR story for them, to the point where there are campaigns now, including Dove and others, who have uh, uh, who are focusing on Lusa Laflamme's gray hair and sort of the idea and understanding in that, like, let's face it, like she was fired because she became an older woman on television. The only good news in this story is that the idiot management people who who created this PR disaster are probably going down. And while that doesn't bring Lisa Laflam back, the, you know, cynic and American in me is quite happy to, to, to see that because it was a spectacularly bad decision. And then lastly, just in terms of preamble, the men who preceded her were allowed to gracefully exit that job in their 60s and 70s, including having uh, a whole week, essentially, of like farewells to celebrate your great career. Lisa Laflam didn't get that. She was basically told to go so i I'll, I'll be very crude here i love to see CTV now have it handed to them because they, they <laughs> fucked up oh, and deserve sorry, to be Rachel. punched. okay yeah so see i'm sorry i didn't mean to sort of filibuster there alex i get back to you you made a strategic decision at a certain point in your career that you were going to transition the reality is you are not very old like chronologically i'm going to be um, 50 I in always, september <laughs> right like i said you're not very old chronologically Um, I always thought you were sort of excellent at what you did and clearly have massive amount of experience. I've had people like Pam Oliver on this podcast. We've talked about this very discussion before. Um, I'm not sure where to sort of go with this, except to ask you that, where do you see this now in the sports sort of media landscape? You made a strategic decision to leave. That was your decision for you, which you got to respect. What I'm hoping is that maybe 20 years from now, like the next Alex Flanagan at 48, like she can she can go another 12, 15 years if she wants to in sports. At the same time, I've covered this a long time. I don't want to be naive. Like the reality is like for every – like Doris Burke and Beth Mullins and Pam Moore, these are unicorns. And a lot of times like the unicorn has to either be like a play-by-play person or an analyst in Doris' case who is just so like exactly. best of the best that you – yeah. Like that. If you're ESPN, right. you can't get let go of her because you've got the, the leverage. So I realized I just talked a lot, but I did want to get your take on this because you really like are kind of the living embodiment of this.
1: Well, I think you just hit the nail on the head. I think part of it is a little bit of a deeper issue. It's about where we put women um, in in sports broadcasting. It's about the opportunities for them, right? So sadly, I actually just gave a speech um, last week in Phoenix, Arizona to kick off the Fiesta Bowl. Um, They had a big luncheon and they asked me to speak about, you know, being a female and kind of the work that I did as a broadcaster and, you know, (laughs) what it meant in terms of being a female in the space. And I talked a little bit about this. I think that you know, when I got into the business, um, you know, women were just starting to become um, people that were put there because they were journalists and they were capable of doing the job. You know, previously a lot of women had been placed there because the executives felt like they appealed to a male audience, right? So, in the, you know, maybe in the 80s, we had a shift, right? Of where, you know, Hannah Storm was somebody I had watched where she was both beautiful and incredibly capable. Um, And and I think, sadly, like we really haven't evolved all that much since we kind of made these breakthroughs. In in the 80s, if you will. I think we've kind of gone back to where we put women in these sideline roles where you're just an accessory. And it's not about necessarily women there, it's about the budget of the show and who's necessary to the broadcast. So as a sideline reporter, you're an accessory. Like you can the game can go on without you. You're an addition to the game. And it's become just a place to kind of put women on a team. And then for I think the team to say, like, oh, look, we have women. I always thought it was a very important role because I think it's a a very key role to providing your audience that sideline experience and interviewing a coach and getting to see kind of the tone and the energy and all those things there. But I think from a executive and a budget standpoint, you can do a game pretty easily without a sideline reporter. So when it comes down to it, it's like, it it is always paid less, right? Like, I don't know. I mean, I I know Joe Buck and Troy Aikman are making a lot of money with ESPN. Like, did the sideline reporter get similar money? Because can't like I
0: I bet you Lisa Salter's got a got a. I think she got she resigned. So I bet you she made more money. But if I can get inside ESPN's talent office and see the difference in salary. And and it's hard because
1: that role requires the same amount of prep work, the same amount of time, the same amount of everything. And then it's dictated by the producer, really, like how much time you get on the air. So it's not really even your fault. You're doing the same job. You're just not perceived as like having the same value. So to go back to what you're saying, I think like where where we need to hire women more is give them. Um, you know, roles that are more significant, that are more meaningful, that that do are critical to a game. Um, I have a client in Sloan Martin, who called me a couple years ago, and I I really didn't know who she was. And she sent me her reel and I put it in, I was like, Oh, my God, she's so good. She's really, really good. She was a full time um, news reporter at WCCO radio and in 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 her free time, whenever she could find it, she was calling games. She was the first um, female radio voice of the Minnesota Lynx. And she was the first woman to call the boys hockey tournament in the state of Minnesota. And she's just like an incredible stud. And so I started advocating for her for years. She started her career calling football in college. She played um, collegiate basketball. She's just like a very, very smart, capable woman who is flawless as a play-by-play person. And so I feel like, Advocating for her for a while, a few people have really, you know, committed to put her in a role. One of them is Tom Bowman at at Learfield, who just recently hired her to sit next to Michael Jr. um, on their Saturday night college football broadcast. And, you know, I think it takes people like Tom, it takes men um, in hiring positions to look at a situation and say, like, hey, this woman is really deserving of this. We are so willing to give a man, a position that they don't have the resume for. And I can think of a very high profile one that just happened as a play by play person. And a woman, you know, it just goes to the same like stereotype, like you have to prove yourself and, and do it, you know, so often, um, to just get that chance. So I think, I think it really is a little deeper than just like, um, you know, do we let women age? It's like, where do we place women? And and how do we utilize them in ways so that they can become a Doris Burke? And Doris is a great example of that is like, she's become a really robust talent in in very authentic to who she is. And she's added so much value. But part of that was really, like, a result of like Greg Popovich and other people, really, it wasn't necessarily like, you know, I don't want to not give ESPN credit, but it was like they leaned in after she became, she proved herself and she became a thing, right? Like they didn't help make her a thing. So um, I will give ESPN credit though. I think they are one of the networks that has done a really nice job of, you know, elevating women and letting women age. Holly Rowe, one of my old colleagues, you know, I love that they've, you know, Holly is so talented and such a hard worker. And yeah, she's finally, you know, getting um, you know, more high profile assignments and things that she deserves. So I think, you know, I think what we've got to guard against sometimes is like when a woman has experience and, you know, you have 20 years of experience, that's worth something, right? Whether you're on the sidelines or, or someplace else, like there's, you know, that, that has to be valued. And I think too often, you know, if you're, if if male executives are just replacing you because you appeal to the male audience, it's very easy to say like, well, we can just go with a younger person who doesn't have the experience and we can pay them a lot less than we would have to pay somebody with 20 years of experience.
0: Yeah, that's well said. Uh, Institutional knowledge uh, in many, many professions, uh, unfortunately is uh, not compensated, but um, you really hit it on the head. Uh, And Holly Rose is a perfect example of like somebody who's just, um, Provides so much institutional knowledge in terms of the the places um, at ESPN she covers. To that network's credit, though, they have rewarded that both compensation-wise as well as um, assignment-wise in many ways. So good on them. Um, Alex Flanagan, as I mentioned before, is now a agent, vice president, and partner at the Family Sports Marketing and Talent Agency. And as we talked about here also, like prior to that, just a really long and, you know, unbelievably successful career when it comes to sports broadcasting, covering the biggest events. I mean, somebody this, somebody covered a Super Bowl. And, you know, if you sort of want to go through the list of people who've covered a Super Bowl for the Super Bowl host broadcaster, that's a very short list. That's, you know, that's under 200 names, basically, since the since the Super Bowl started alex i really enjoyed this thank you for your insight um i wish you nothing but the best and i have no doubt you're going to be successful at this um and i think my audience will really appreciate just seeing a little bit of a different side of the business given obviously i talked to a lot of uh front-facing people on this podcast thanks so much today for uh, for joining me on the sports media podcast and best of luck with this
1: thank you richard i appreciate your listening to me and letting me babble <laughs> it was fun
0: all right, back in the studio. My thanks to Chad Finn and Alex Flanagan for their insights and their time. Uh, head to the archives page, Sports Media with Richard Deitch archives page. There should be uh, some stuff here that you'll enjoy. Last podcast before this one, a conversation with Jenny Rentis of the New York Times and Lindsey Jones of the Ringer, two of the best of what they do. and We talked a lot about covering the hard stories that uh, that exist in the NFL. Obviously, Jenny's reporting on Deshaun Watson is pretty pretty remarkable. Lindsay has done great columns and great pieces during her career. I really enjoyed that conversation before that we had Richie Zients and uh, Rich Russo Fox's NFL producer NFL director talking about working with Burkhart and also for the first time uh planning for Tom Brady and what it's like to produce and direct NFL games before that Michael Grady new television voice of the T-Wolves Anish Sharaf new radio voice of the Carolina Panthers for that Leah Hextall and her experience in her first year as an NHL broadcaster there should be things you like in the archives, um, and if you do like this conversation, please leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That is how this uh, podcast uh, continues, uh, and uh, and we hope it does for some time. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti for his hard work. Thanks to everybody Cadence 13. Mostly, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.